This is Legal Luminaries. Join us as we delve into the inspiring stories of some of the greatest legal minds to have shaped South Africa's democracy and law. I'm Imandra Petty, your guide through the series. Hello and welcome to this special broadcast series in partnership with Juta and Jacaranda FM. The Legal Luminary series is all about building a legacy for future generations based on the experiences and the contributions of South Africa's leading legal minds. This conversation is not only about the future, but it's also about educating and empowering young and upcoming lawyers to help guide them while deepening the social conversation that we are having right now in South Africa about justice and about access to justice in our country. So we must give these individuals their flowers while they are still here and celebrate their achievements and contributions to the legal landscape. So hopefully we are doing just that. So I am thrilled to welcome Judge Sissy Kampepe to the conversation today. Let me just quickly give you a little bit about her backstory. All the way back in 2000, Judge Kampepe was appointed as a judge of the High Court for the Transvaal Provincial Division, and then in 2007, as a judge of appeal to the Labor Appeals Court. Two years after that, she was appointed to the Constitutional Court of South Africa. And that's where she served the judiciary until October 2021, when she retired. But then she was appointed the chair of the SAFA Ethics Committee, and then last year, appointed as chancellor at the University of Pretoria. That same year, she was appointed as chair of the Commission of Inquiry into Allegations of Racism at Stellenbosch University. So hello, Judge Kampepe, and welcome. What was that about you retiring? (laughs) (laughs) I had served my required years of service as a constitutional court, so had to retire. But it hasn't seemed like that has slowed you down one single bit because your diary is so full and so busy, hey? Yes, yes, it is. So I'm so excited that we are getting to talk about your career today. And it's going to be a little bit different to interviews you would have done before because we want to get into the history and we really want to create a repository, especially for young legal minds in our, in our country, to look at people like yourselves as leading and guiding lights. So you are a Soweto girl. You're born in the late 50s. And who can forget that at that stage in history, there were waves of legal repression that were enacted by the apartheid government. I'm going to name just a few. You had the Immorality Amendment Act, initially passed in 27, amended in in that decade, which unbelievably prevented sex between white people and all non-white people. Mm. You had the Can you imagine? And then you had the Group Areas Act, which assigned racial groups to different residential and business sections. And then you had the Population Registration Act, which officially divides South Africans into white, colored, Asian or native population groups. And this is a period, Judge, that you were born into. Share your recollections of childhood with us during this this tumultuous time in our history. Well, I was born in Soweto at Orlando West, where I grew up. My father was a truck driver and my mother was a dress designer and dressmaker. I was the only child out of three children to have gone to university. Some of the defining moments during my childhood that affected the judge that I became was when I was 16 years old. I witnessed my loving uncle being arrested by the police for being in possession of a passbook that did not qualify him to be in Johannesburg in terms of Section 101A, B or C of the Group Areas Act. 
My uncle had come to visit Johannesburg from Natal to seek employment in Johannesburg. My uncle was arrested for being in possession of that passport that did not qualify him to be in Johannesburg and was sentenced to a term of imprisonment of 30 days with a condition that he was not to return to Johannesburg at the end of his imprisonment. When my loving uncle returned to Natal, he was brutally murdered. Up to this day, I blame the system for his murder. For had he been allowed to remain in Johannesburg, he would not have met his unfortunate death. Judge, that's such a, a deep moment that you share. I wonder if that in part solidified your your desire to live your life as a champion for justice. Yes. It started from my childhood experience of having witnessed the arrest of my uncle and having been sentenced to a term of imprisonment of 30 days. And at high school, however, my debate teacher encouraged me to pursue law as a career. And we're going to circle back to that because, you know, the time and that time frame in which you chose to become a judge was one that was certainly going to be a life of hardship. But before we get there, I really found it, you know, quite interesting, Judge, that you spent almost a decade um, as a facilitator on the street committee for Soweto in those tumultuous years in South Africa between 1978 and 1988. As you look at South Africa now, crisis-ridden, you have protests with people who are raising really life-threatening issues, their lived conditions. What can you share about the value of organizing in the way that you did to consolidate people power to tackle our contemporary challenges? I think it taught us to work in tandem as a society and that working together, you can triumph the evil. As a street committee organizer, you had to go around locating people and impressing upon them to see the good that was being done by the street committee in changing the lives of South Africans. It's so interesting you talk about the kind of activism that, you know, is so needed, I think, in in more organized and focused ways in South Africa um, by bringing in people individually. Maybe to share just one or two nuggets around how you can do that successfully. So the one thing is to obviously rally around an issue. How do you get people to buy in and support a, a cause street by street? You have to be very tolerant of people's views about an issue that is burning at the time. You have to try and understand where they come from and understand their plight and the common good that is there for all of you in joining forces to fight the evil system that was there during the apartheid years. Let's read these two things together. These, the apartheid years, the decade of your birth when so much was changing to continually tighten the noose around the black lived experience in South Africa, what happened with your uncle and the encouragement of your high school teacher. Why did you choose the legal route, which for a young black female at that time was certainly to choose a life of hardship? 
when I was practicing as a lawyer specializing in human rights matters in labor law, at that time I was appointed by former President Nelson Mandela to the Commissioner of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Whilst I was a commissioner of the TRC, I was appointed as an acting judge and thus served as a presiding judge of the Amnesty Committee hearings. During my tenure at the TRC, I served as a member of the Amnesty Committee with Justice Bernard Mwepe. When he became a judge, he invited me to join the bench and I agreed. What were some of your, your recollections of that time and how difficult it would have been for you as a young Black woman? Even before you reached those positions of prestige and, and importance, the earlier Judge Khampepe, uh, you know, working through the legal system, getting her articles, just share a little bit about that time and some of your anecdotes and recollections from that period. Yes. Well, to get articles of clerkship was quite a difficult task. I remember that I applied to many, many legal firms for articles. But I suppose then I faced the double obstacles of being a woman and a Black person. In one interview that I remember quite vividly, the attorneys who were conducting the interview asked if I was really a person who had obtained an LLM from Harvard Law School, which I found quite astonishing because I had a degree to prove that I had obtained a a degree from that university. I suppose that belied their own prejudices against Black people having to obtain legal careers in higher institutions of learning such as Harvard Law School. But I struggled to get articles of clerkship with a legal firm because my interest then was in labor law. And I wanted to be articled to a firm that practiced labor as an area of specialization. I also had to head the intervention of Arthur Charles Carson, who was the director of the Legal Resources Center, to be ultimately able to get articles of, of clerkship. I was at the point where I was about to leave the legal profession, and I had spoken to people who had sponsored me for my university degree at a, an American university. And they promised me a job of being a student coordinator. That's how far it came to me leaving the legal profession. Wow. And I'm so glad that you had that architecture of support, Judge. Otherwise, we wouldn't be sitting here possibly having quite this discussion. Maybe you would have found your route into another career. And yet you have served the law so well in South Africa. And maybe this is a good point to share some words of encouragement to other aspiring legal practitioners in South Africa who struggle with, um, you know, dealing with finances or some of the other obstacles that they have in really being able to pursue a life in law. I would advise young lawyers that need to become judges that they will need to be extremely knowledgeable of the law and the constitution. 
I would also emphasize that it takes blood, sweat and tears and many sleepless nights to do what needs to be done to protect the integrity of the courts and the rule of law. They must expect and be willing to do nothing less than to work tirelessly and make sacrifices. I would remind them that the law can be intimidating, but you are always as a lawyer armed with a pen and as a judge, a sword and fragile, delicate words as your shield. Finally, aspiring judges must bear in mind the importance of integrity and the need to conduct themselves with integrity and humility at all times. And again, that's why it is such a gift to be able to have people who have had the impact and contribution that people like yourselves have, uh, Judge Kampepe, as well as people like Justice Bernard Nguepe, who we had the pleasure of talking to recently. He's you my role to- model. <laughs> I was actually going to get to the role model question. I think he's going to be hugely, uh, hugely flattered, but I'm sure he's heard that from you already, just about how inspirational he has been to people like yourselves. But you, in your own right, are a huge inspiration in the legal profession in South Africa. Talk to us just for a second or two about your own practice, which you opened, which focused on people's struggles. Yes, I practice as a labor lawyer and represented unions from both COSATU and NATU. During those early years, temporary workers could be dismissed without a hearing. If an employer did not like your face, you could be told to leave at a short time's notice without a hearing being afforded to you. I was very interested in making sure that that situation changed. And I'm happy to report that one of my seminal matters involved, in fact, a case in which workers' rights were upheld and the employer was said not to have the right to dismiss workers without a hearing. That was seminal in that during the Before the advent of democracy, you did not have fair employment practices. And that sealed the importance of giving a worker a hearing before he or she could be dismissed. That's really powerful. And we can still feel, you know, the impacts of those really foundational legal you know, decisions or that legal campaign in our labor system today. I'm going to talk about the courts in just a moment, but maybe this is a good point to just talk about your philosophy for life based on those, on those early years, which really influenced how you practiced the administration of justice later. My philosophy has always been to conduct myself with humility, fairness and respect for others. That's wonderful. And one would say, you know, as as a judge in your daily life, you're so close to that compass point every single day because of the work that you do. Wouldn't it be amazing if all of us could kind of live and breathe our philosophies, even in the work that we're doing every single day and be reminded about that commitment that we're making to ourselves and society? Well, let's talk about the courts, Judge. And, you know, you look around South African society, but not just South African society, global society where the delivery or access to justice for people is very much 
predicated along class lines. The deeper the pockets, the wider the access. The shallower the pockets, the narrower the access. What's your observation in contemporary times of access to law, especially for those whose pockets are not well lined? Well, it is very unfortunate that we live in an era where how you obtain justice is dependent on how much money you have to be able to afford that justice. And it is quite true in our country that the majority of our people whose rights are dependent on the constitution and having to be able to enforce the constitution are unfortunately at a state where they cannot afford such legal services. I think there are two important ways. The first part relates to the billable hours that feature in the legal profession. The fee structure of the billable hours permits considerable room for abuse and exploitation of clients through the inflation of time to increase fees. In addition to being highly unethical, this also makes legal services more inaccessible and more expensive. Another issue is, of course, that the fee structure and the scope of abuse contributes to an unhealthy work culture within the legal profession, which is primarily driven by fee targets. There are two important ways in which the legal representation can be made more affordable and accessible to all. The first, in my view, is through increased funding and support for free legal services to those who cannot afford it. And we know that the majority of those people whose constitutional rights are not being protected cannot afford such legal representation. The second is through heightened obligations on legal practitioners to provide pro bono services to clients who cannot afford legal services. Many law firms and practitioners generate enormous revenues every year. And there is no doubt that they have resources that they could spare and direct towards increasing pro bono services. In this way, we would be able to provide legal services to the many South Africans whose pockets are not well lined to afford legal services. It's quite a sobering thing that you raise around the billable hours. So what what can be done about it in this moment? Those are really great suggestions. You've also shared the context in which it is happening and the fact that it's open to abuse. You know, what can the legal fraternity and society actually right now do to be able to take those recommendations that you make forward in making access to justice more uh, equitable? I think it's an interesting issue that requires a little bit of uh, imagination and consideration. But I think a more transparent and upfront fee agreement is preferable as this protects clients from exploitation because lawyers in any case have to bill for the hours that they provide in court. So a transparent 
an upfront fee agreement is preferable in the circumstances. Let's talk a little bit about, and again, you have been really, really busy across our different courts and been involved in a number of seminal cases in the country. When you think about the the merit or, or the capabilities of the legal fraternity, well, in particular, ju- judges in South Africa, do you think that we do enough to train judges to help them make good decisions and to write well-structured and well-thought-out, eloquent judgments even? Yes. I think the situation has become very much more interesting. The Office of the Chief Justice is conducting a training course to equip aspiring judges to be able to adjudicate in all facets of the administration of the law and in being able to be capable of writing well-structured judgment. So I think enough is being done in this regard with the training program that is being offered by the Office of the Chief Justice. In all your time across South Africa's courts, uh, Judge Khampepe, what judgment or case sticks out in your mind? Well, there are a number of cases that sticks out of my mind. The first one is when I was practicing as an attorney at my law firm. And this was what grounded me to become a judge, which I I became, where I won a case involving the workers of the Sibukeng and Ferenekeng Hospital. This was a seminal matter that affirmed that an employer cannot dismiss a temporary employee without giving him or her a hearing, as I have said previously. And this was a situation that affected thousands of workers at the time who were employed at the provincial hospitals. This was memorable to me because it was a triumph in my pursuit of fighting for labor rights and fair labor practices through my attorney's practice. Then of course, there was the Teddy Bear Clinic judgment. That was a seminal judgment of the Constitutional Court that dealt with children's rights. That matter arose because of certain statutory provisions that had the effect of criminalizing consensual sexual conduct between children of a certain age. We in that matter were called upon to consider whether it is constitutionally permissible for children to be subject to criminal sanctions in order to deter early sexual intimacy and combat the risk associated therewith. We answered in the negative because the limitation on children's rights that arose from the imposition of criminal sanction could not be justified in terms of the constitution. Children's rights are very close to my heart and I am proud that my colleagues and I were able to proffer an interpretation of the law that endorses that children have rights as individuals and are not having the rights which are merely extended from their parents. Another memorable case was Mankai versus Anglo Gold Ashanti, which concerned a mine worker 
who was seeking damages from his employer on the basis that he had contracted occupational disease, including TB, which rendered him unable to continue working. In that case, we are to consider whether the Compensation for Occupational Injuries Diseases Act, called COIDA, extinguishes the common law right of mine workers to recover damages against mine owners, even though they were covered by the Occupational Diseases in Mines and Workers Act, called ODIMWA, and as such are not entitled to claim under COIDA. We answered the question in the negative and interpreted the relevant provisions of COIDA to extinguish the common law right only to employees entitled to claim compensation in terms of OTIMWA. And the applicant consent was able to claim in terms of COIDA. This matter is important because it led to a successful launch of a class action lawsuit by minors who suffered from silicosis and TB, wherein a current settlement of 5 billion was paid. As of the moment, currently, approximately 1 billion rands has been distributed to 11,000 families of the minors who suffered and suffered from silicosis and TB diseases. Then, of course, there are the two Zuma matters that I penned prior to my retirement in 2021. As you know, the matter first came about because the Constitutional Court ordered former President Zuma to heed the summons issued by and attend the proceedings of the State Capture Commission. He defied that order. The Secretary of the State Capture Commission then approached the Constitutional Court for an order declaring that the former president was in contempt of court and requesting the court to sentence him to imprisonment. After a grueling process of deliberation, two judgments were penned. The majority by me, this was a tense and critical moment both for the court and the country. Through his willful and disdainful defiance of the court order, the former president had challenged the most foundational tenets of the rule of law. Had he enjoyed impunity for this integrity and the supremacy of the constitutional court would have been severely compromised. We were very conscious in that matter of our duty as the guardians of the constitution, the judiciary, the rule of law, and indeed our constitutional democracy as a whole. We had to bear in mind as we crafted an appropriate sentence for an entirely noble and exceptional factual mix, we're anxious and determined to get the law right. Yeah. In the end, the majority sentenced the former president to an unsuspended period of incarceration for 15 months to vindicate the rule of law. My own impression was that this shocked the country, but also reassured many that the rule of law was alive and well, and that the Constitutional Court would remain steadfast despite the precarious political situation in the country.
And I want to actually touch on that point because we heard from the chief justice, you know, when, when judgments are so politically or they happen in a context where there's, you know, that politically inflaming environment, um, Chief Justice Zondo said judges were attacked, they were demeaned, threatened and intimidated that, you know, to a point that constitutional court justices had to be given special protection to do the work that you were just saying is so important for a democracy like ours. How do you keep sane, Judge? How do you keep a sense of calm and purpose when you are in an arena and operating in an arena like this that is so politically charged? You are always reminded of the judicial oath of office that you took, that would protect the rule of law and the constitution. And that's what keeps you sane and grounded in all the work that you do as a constitutional court judge. By the way, in that matter, I was in fact threatened. Um, I received personal threats when I was doing the Zuma matter. I received many personal threats during that time. Although I never doubted my ability to do my job, it was troubling to experience these blatant attempts to interfere with the administration of the law. But as I say, the oath of office that you took keeps you grounded and make you steadfast in making sure that you administer justice without fear, favor, and prejudice. Could you share a little bit more about those threats? Well, I'd rather not. But I was threatened, and my family was threatened in the process. When you have matters that involve uh, a head of state, and just by way of beginning to close our conversation, I can't believe how time has flown, um, you are automatically placed in, in, in a different context. And I would just like your commentary, Justice Hampepe, on a matter that is seizing us, which involves our own head of state in this moment, President Cyril Ramaphosa, in the way that the Palapala matter has unfolded. And it's going to be up to your colleagues on the bench, you know, to adjudicate these matters as they seem certain to be sort of the final arbiter in a way along with Parliament around the responsibility and accountability of the president. What advice would you give around this matter? And what's your observation of the way the Palapala matter has unfolded legally? I don't think it is proper for me to give advice in this regard. I think we have good judges who are there to make sure that the rule of law is observed at all times. I have no doubt that when the matter comes to court, uh, the courts will be able to administer the matter in a proper way. But I wouldn't dare give advice on this matter. Judge, thank you so much for indulging us in this conversation. There's so much more I would have wanted to ask you around your time um, at the TRC and the responsibility of the NPA to go after people who didn't actually get amnesty. And so many other issues, your time on commissions of inquiry, including around the disbandment of the Scorpions. But I would invite our listeners and our viewers to go and read up on some of these historical judgments and findings that you, and recommendations that you have made over the course of your career. As we close off, Judge, what are you most proud of 
in terms of yourself. And please do feel free to be, I don't want to call it vanity, but feel free to say something in, about yourself and not be so humble. <laughs> it is not in my nature. Um, <laughs> I feel proud to have been given an opportunity to serve our country and also to serve our country uh, at the Apex Court and to have been given an opportunity to pen memorable cases which I have already shared with the audience. I think this is a great honor for me. And without being modest, that is a proudest moment of my life. Judge Sisi Kampepe, it has been an absolute joy, a pleasure, and a privilege having this time in conversation with you today. Thank you very much. Good luck. I know that you're still such a busy bee. You've just completed your work at the Stellenbosch University in terms of the allegations of racism there. We heard uh, from the university about the impact that, that ha- those recommendations have made and what remedial steps they're going to be taking. So you continue to make an impact and long may it be so for as long as we can have access to you. Thank you very much. And I want to say to our audience, thank you very much for listening to our conversation today. And I would invite you to follow our Legal Luminary series, a partnership between Juta and Jacaranda FM. And you can also catch it on Jackpods or wherever you listen to your podcast. I look forward to spending some time with you again soon. Thank you very much, Iman. You've been listening to Legal Luminaries, a Jackpod original podcast by Juta and Jacaranda FM. I'm Imandra Petty. Find more episodes at jacarandafm.com. Just click on Jackpot.